Hey, welcome back. My name's Robert Fleming. I'm a partner in the Tucson, Arizona Elder Law Firm of Fleming and Curdy PLC, and you're listening to Elder Law Issues, our periodic podcast. With me today, as almost every time, is my law partner and partner in podcasting, Elizabeth Noble Rawlings Freeman. Elizabeth, welcome back. Thanks, Robert. I thought today we could talk about discussing family wealth. So here's the question. If you have significant assets, when should you be talking to your children and your other family members, anyone who's going to be involved in your estate? When should you talk to them about what you have, what they can expect, what the documents say, where they can find information? Or do you want to carry that information to your grave and just let them find out at the reading of the will? Wow, Robert. Well, these are really personal questions, and I think the first answer I have for you is, it all depends. Depends. What a lawyer answer. (laughs) Well, I'm giving you my answer both as a lawyer, but also as a fiduciary. You know, here at Fleming and Curdy, we act as trustee for many families and personal representative. We also help people during their lifetimes as their financial agents under durable powers of attorney. And so we see this question and this conundrum come up for people. And the first thing I'd I'd tell our listeners today is that when we talk about having a healthy estate, I meet with somebody and and maybe they have two or three hundred thousand dollars and that's a healthy estate. You and I both meet with people who may have more money. Um, You know, when you meet with somebody and they're talking to you about their assets, whether they're big or small, it's all relative and it's up to them about what they want to disclose. I tell you that my response to what they should share has a lot to do with how they're feeling about sharing information. If they want to talk about their interest in a maybe a family cottage or family vacation property or maybe a family business, you know, that's a whole lot different than talking to a child, for instance, about how much money is in that person's brokerage account. So I think we, when we start the discussion, there are really a lot of different approaches you can take. We should probably set family business aside as a whole separate conversation because that also has elements of who's going to take over the business when you die. Are you planning on retiring and se- selling the business to strangers or segueing slowly out of the business and turning it over to one or more of your children? Those are all very specialized conversations that, uh, that probably deserve another podcast episode. But I really like your family cottage as a good illustration. How many times have you had clients say, oh yes, we still have the cottage that I inherited from my parents in Michigan or someplace a little bit further north from Tucson. Uh, and I want to make sure it stays in the family so all of my descendants can go visit whenever they want to. Do you need to have talked about that mechanism, that, that structure with the kids before you decide to kick the bucket? Well, Robert, I think it's a good idea to anticipate the questions that your heirs may have. Like, how are they going to be able to pay for the expenses with the cottage? Have you been able to save enough money that you are able to take care of your portion of the cottage expenses every year? Are you going to make sure to help them be able to do that? When we talk about family planning and and wealth transfers, I try and get a sense from folks about if they're going to be sharing their estate with a child or children when they die, whether or not the kids are good money managers. Because what I find is, is that people who are good money managers 
can oftentimes sit down with a bit of objectivity. Of course, there's always emotion in family discussions, particularly when death and money are part of those discussions. But when you have a child or children who are good money managers, they're good savers, they know how to ask questions, maybe they have professional financial advisors in their circle, sometimes you can have some pretty productive conversations with children and family members that help them understand what's headed their way. Are they going to be responsible for filing lots of different tax returns when you die? Are they going to be responsible for taking on some debt? Sometimes, Robert, when we meet with people who have significant wealth, they also have significant debt. That's part of how they handle their business, and it's not necessarily a bad thing. But I think that the question really, really begs a different answer for everybody. And so when we have these conversations here, they're private. And that's one thing that I think you and I both take to heart. It's one of the reasons why we meet with our clients one-on-one. Just recently, I had a son try and invite himself into the meeting with his dad. And you know what? It wasn't a meeting where I was going to meet with the son. It was a one-on-one meeting with his father. So when we talk about wealth, it's important that Robert, the people we meet with understand that those are private conversations. So do you recommend that however they do it, whenever they do it, that parents should let their children know generally what kinds of assets they have, what they're worth, or is it okay to, to let them be surprised? Robert, I think it's okay to let people be surprised. However, if you're not going to share an inventory of accounts with your kids, it's really important that they know who your financial advisor may be, who they know, who you work with on your tax returns. It's important that they know where you keep copies of statements or records that might relate to your taxes. So in cases where people decide to be very, very private about their wealth and they do want to have family involved, I try and make sure they understand starting with an inventory of assets And a list of contacts is the best way to start making sure that your children are informed. However, if we meet with people, Robert, and they decide that they want an independent fiduciary like Fleming and Curdy, and that's partially because they want to keep this information private, I then have to explain that if they're going to name a child as a beneficiary of their estate, and Fleming and Curdy is a trustee, we are under obligations under Arizona law to report annually on what the trust holds. So even if we're only allowed to distribute income from a trust to a child or children, you need to be sure to explain to the family who are setting up the trust that there are reporting requirements. So while the parents may want to keep this information private during their lifetimes, at a certain point as trustee, we are required to disclose that under Arizona law. So just to be clear, we've been talking about best practices, but there's no legal obligation that you tell your family about what you have or how much you're worth or who's going to be the next person responsible for managing your estate as trustee or personal representative or whatever authority they're going to have. And there's no legal prohibition against disclosing that information. It's totally up to you. As you said, Elizabeth, it's a, it's a, a matter of choice. But now, best practice What do you wish people would do? Well, Robert, what I wish people would do is I wish they would sit down and really think about the legacy that they want to create. You can create legacies through the jobs or the careers that you've had. You can create legacies through the way that you leave your estate when you die, the intent that you have to pass along money. Oftentimes when I sit down with people and we talk about their estate plans or the administration of their trust, 
I realize people haven't actually thought about the legacy they want to create. If the legacy that you want to create is to continue passing money down through generations and want to think about that kind of a wealth transfer, it's important to think about how we can construct that in a way that provides some autonomy and independence to your children, but also ensures that there's some structure that all of a sudden you don't have one child buy a Maserati and all of a sudden go through quite a bit more money than you may have intended. Now, when I say thinking about your legacy, I think that also means I wish that people would think very carefully about how to start some discussion with family before you die about what's most important. Because it's those people, Robert, that we work with that never really had an opportunity to sit down with their family members and talk about the family memories that they may have had, the things that they wish they had been able to say earlier. And maybe they leave behind an estate with millions and millions of dollars, but that's not really what was meaningful to them about their legacy. So I wish people really would think about that legacy question. And if your legacy is not to pass down money, but is to pass down certain values, and you think about the community and serving the community, maybe part of that legacy is making a charitable gift. We see more and more people, Robert, creating donor-advised funds. Those donor-advised funds can be turned into endowments, and they don't have to have tons and tons of money. I mean, I see people create endowments with several hundred thousand dollars, and sometimes family members can be involved with the decisions that relate to the endowment. And I think that's kind of an interesting way to think about legacy, too. You know, in this regard, Elizabeth, I had one client who wanted to set up donor-advised funds precisely so that his two children would have to think about charitable intentions. And he named them as the advisors, and, uh, and they had to sit and meet with the community foundation that managed the money once a year to decide what were, what were worthy causes. Uh, and his idea was, the client's idea was that he was giving the, the children an extra gift by not giving them money, but by giving them this charitable responsibility. So I, I completely agree with you. But here's my last question on this subject. Elizabeth, if, if your client has decided they want to have some information available to their children or whoever is in their lives, whoever the, the beneficiaries will be, uh, how do you do that mechanically? Do we have a, 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 an ability to, to run a family meeting or do we just make extra copies of the documents and hand them to them? Do we have any suggestions for clients about how to convey this information? That's a great question, Robert. One of the things that I like to encourage clients to do is to write a letter of intent, something in their own writing that describes how they think about their legacy and what the most important goals are for them. I ask them to write this letter of intent either by hand or on their own computer and share it with me so that I can read it and make sure that it doesn't conflict with any of the estate plans we've created. But oftentimes, sharing that kind of a letter with family and inviting them to a meeting at a place like Fleming and Curdy, where we have a very clear agenda that's approved by the client in advance to talk about what that letter means, that's a, that's a wonderful opportunity for people to start being able to have a conversation. But in those family meetings, Robert, when we run those, we always set the agendas in advance, even though sometimes it's hard to follow them because we want to make sure that we keep things structured. A family meeting doesn't mean that we open a Pandora's box and, and share information that wasn't intended to be shared. It's simply an opportunity to try and begin a conversation and try and help a family facilitate some early discussions. So I think the takeaway here, Elizabeth, is uh, it's good to share information with your family or, uh, or your beneficiaries. 
it's it's something that we can help facilitate. It's not required, but uh, but you might learn something back from your children as well. That that uh, you might learn that they're not as invested in your goals or in your intention as you thought they might be. You might learn that they're not prepared to take on some of the tasks. You might re- learn that they are eager to step up and do that. That's that's all we're going to talk about today for uh, for elder law issues. You've been listening to Robert Fleming and Elizabeth Noble Rawlings Freeman. We are two of the partners at Fleming and Curdy PLC, a Tucson, Arizona elder law firm, and uh, and we'll hope to talk with you again on another occasion. Thanks. <music>